Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. We are very happy to have the Lord Mayor of London um, join us for another show on Breaking Banks. It is the new Lord Mayor of London, Vincent Keveney. Is that how I say it, Vincent? Keveney. Keveney is how it's pronounced. Speaks, yeah. Vincent Keveney. Um, so uh, you took um, office on 13th of November 2021. So let me first ask you, um, how does it feel to be Lord Mayor? To say it's a pretty extraordinary office. I mean, 693rd Lord Mayor of London. I mean, it's uh, if, if you thought about it too much, the history would sort of where it would 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 overpower you. Uh, but and, and it is great. That history is amazing. To, the first Lord Mayor in 1189, uh, 692 people before me in the in the office. Uh, but it's it's and uh, so it's a great platform. But it, it is a platform from which mm. we look at what's going on today. But more importantly, thinking about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. It's it the, his, the history gives us the history gives us a base from which to to work. But we are more interested in tomorrow than 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 that uh, thousand nearly nearly thousand year old history behind us. Well, um, Lord Mayor, uh, you know you do have a tough act to follow. I think uh, William Russell, who preceded you, he he did an excellent job in our field, which is the fintech arena. I am uh, delighted a that you you're coming back on the show as an office, and, and secondly that fintech continues to be important for you. Um, maybe maybe can I just ask, did you um, know much about the fintech space before you uh, took office? I'm my, my background, my professional background is as a capital markets banking oh, and finance go. lawyer. So I had a fair, I had a fair bit of exposure in in that to uh, to, to the tech sector, to fintech. Uh, it's it wasn't my primary area of, of practice, but you know, operating as a financial, I, I co-chaired the financial services sector at my my law firm for for three or four years, running up to the point at which it was simply getting impossible to carry on that role and prepare for the mayoralty as sure. well. Uh, so yeah, and I've I've had a fair bit to do with the the, the fintech uh, sector, and, and my my firm DLA Piper has a a big practice in that area. Oh, of course, I know DLA. So and well done. Um, uh, so uh, I know you're in San Francisco right now. Of course, um, you know we're just coming off the back of the biggest year of fintech investment. Uh, um, of any year in history. So big year for fintech last year. London continues to do well in respect to fintech. But what brings you to San Francisco this trip? It's great. It's great connecting up our two fantastic hubs again. And, and it's that. It's connecting them up again. You mentioned William, my predecessor. William did a great job, as you said. He was he was out here in December 2019. And we haven't had a visit by Lord Mayor uh, since. So right. It's you know it's pretty. It's about time to get back here to start talking to the VC community face to face again. And the biggest thing that's coming out of this is just the the sheer, the, just the the energy and the enthusiasm that you get when you're back in a room again in person with people. I think we've all been missing that over the last couple of years. And meetings like the meetings I've had for the two the last two days just bring bring that home more than ever to me. 
No doubt, uh, COVID permitting, as as we've said, right? Um, you know, so you're doing well to sort of get back into things. Uh, in, in the past, do you feel like that these visits, particularly um, given there's such a strong, um, you know, VC fund base uh, from Sand Hill Road and obviously in Palo Alto and, and San Francisco generally, do you feel like these visits result in hard capital flows of venture capital dollars to the UK fintech market? Uh, we know they have in previous years when COVID's been uh, when we haven't had COVID to deal with. The Lord Mayors have tended to bring out a business delegation with them, and we can point. We have been able to. You know, we've had we've had some of the companies on those on those delegations coming back and saying, "Great, that was fantastic. We've we've just closed a, a, a funding round, and we we've we've had a couple of the VCs we met out with you in Sand Hill Road joining those funding rounds. So we know it does have. We we have we we can track some of that. This year, I'm I'm not able to take a business delegation with me. I think that would have just been a bit of a stretch, given the COVID challenges, yep. you know, the restrictions, and the you know just the the risks entail that that traveling with a big party would have entailed. Would one of us have tested positive, for instance? I mean, all of that sort of stuff you've got to do these days. But I think we will be tracking the meetings we have. We've got a lot of a lot of follow up actions to coming out of the meetings. A lot of the a lot of the VCs will be over in London in coming months, looking at opportunities here uh, in in London. That is, and then they're also looking. They they want to start meeting in person again. Possible investment opportunities here in the Bay Area. So we're going to be bringing in. Bring, making sure that we're, we're connecting up uh, potential investment opportunities and those VC investors over coming months. And there's a lot happening in London in the in coming months. We've got the Tech Week, FinTech Week, big big events coming up over the next six months or so. So lots of opportunities to get those VC investors over to London talking potential FinTech companies and entrepreneurs. Now, obviously, last year was a, was a big year for FinTech, um, but... It's a huge, respect- huge year in London. Yeah, huge yeah, year so, in London. Great numbers. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what are you seeing, um, you know, for the start of the year in terms of activity in London? Is it continuing strongly on um, such as it did in, in 2021? I think it has been a little. I suspect we'll look back and we'll see this the slight slowing in, in in over the very the very early part of this year. I think that's uh, the the little bit of market volatility, a bit of softening in the markets. I think again, Omicron has that did catch everybody. Uh, Plus just, the crypto crash, right? Well, that, yeah, that there's one one or two things like that that have been on people's minds over the last uh, month or so. And so I think we, you know, I think we're going, but we're working through that. And I, I mean, one of the interesting things is that yeah, a lot of the people I'm talking to have not been have not been to London, have not been to the UK uh, in over two years. There is a bit of a disconnect between what's happening on the ground in the UK and in Europe and, and the perceptions here. And we, we, I think people traveling, people seeing in person what the story really is in London and the UK will, I think, kick charge the investment cycle a bit later this year. Yeah, I'm hoping to get back there in May, but... Um... Not not sure if it's going to happen, but hopefully. Um, I, I'd, yeah. I'd encourage you. I'd encourage you to go. I mean, you'll you'll be surprised. London is feeling pretty normal at the moment, and uh, we're certainly several months ahead of of. Uh, well, it's it's interesting being here in San Francisco and, and finding finding it. You know, it's 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 quite conservative in comparison to the position in London. Now, I, I know that the UK-US relationship has always been a strong one, um, but from an administrative perspective and from the perspective, I know the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has been a big supporter of fintech in the past. Um, in fact, I had the uh, opportunity to interview him uh, pri- you know, when he was mayor of London uh, previously, and fintech was a big part of his push even back then. But um, in terms of the current administration and sort of coming off the back of the pandemic, 
how is this reflected in respect to interest in the fintech area, particularly as, as an alliance feature? Yeah, I think the government is is very interested in it. We've got to get, we have a lot of support even on this trip. We've got uh, the Department of International Trade team here in San Francisco supporting us on the trip. There's, there's Lord Grimstone, the Minister for Investment in the UK. Uh, I was uh, I was I was WhatsApping him only a few hours ago, keeping him uh, updated on the on the progress of the visit and a couple of the meetings I've had where he may well follow up on one or two of those opportunities. So there's real, I mean that's that is real ministerial interest directly in what's what's going on and we've heard it from we've heard it from the chancellor of the exchequer rishi sunak there's a, a real commitment on the part of the government to encouraging the the development of the tech sector and the fintech uh, the t- sector in 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 the uk and what i'm hoping we're waiting to see uh, the future regulate financial services regulatory framework mm. should be coming out shortly and I, I would hope that there will be some positive aspects in in there that will, that will encourage the vc investment in the uk that side of of, of the equation uh, alongside the vc in, investor interest here on, on on this side of the atlantic in, in san francisco i think we'll see i'm hoping that we'll see some positive developments on that in in the regulatory area in coming weeks do you think that that could tactically extend to, um, you know, some some common regulatory platforms? I mean, the FCA does a tremendous job in terms of their tech sprints and other elements. There's a lot of discussion about cryptocurrency right now, of course, the whole NFT thing and so forth. Um, given the speed with which the industry is moving, it would sort of make sense for some consensus-based regulation on a global basis in respect to some of these things. There's obviously an opportunity for the US and the UK to provide some leadership there. But um, is it too fragmented to expect that that, you know, sort of policy development might come out of an alliance like this? I, I think it's a big ask because of the, as you say, the, the fragmented nature of, of, of regulation across the world. And in this area, it, it gets complicated. There's a lot of a lot of big regulatory issues that need to be handled. But uh, we are very, we are working. One of the things the City of London Corporation has been pushing for is closer regulatory understanding between the US and the UK. Mm-hmm. I think the the term the, 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 that's used over here in the in the states is deference. In the sense that we, we'd probably talk about mutual recognition on the UK side of the Atlantic. So we're we're not talking about effectively the same regulation or, or regulatory alignment. But we're, we're we're talking about a recognition of broadly equivalent re- regimes. And if we can work towards more deference in the regulatory relationship between the two countries. I mean, that's going to be great for investment opportunities on both sides of the, the Atlantic. We don't need a big free trade agreement to get there. There's, there's no, lots of other things we can do to uh, short, of a, short of a free trade agreement which covers services. But, you know, I, 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 I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here, but it's something maybe you can have to think about for next time we talk. Um, you know, part of what's happening in, in the financial services space and, and you know, given your background in capital markets, I, you'd understand this also, is um, that there, there's a high level of automation being applied to the space right now. Obviously, that's going to get fairly intense over the next few years. There's going to be a lot more artificial intelligence deployed. Um, we, we don't really have much regulation on AI right now, and it doesn't apply just to, um, you know, financial services. Obviously, it has a broader, um, a, a, a much broader impact societally, potentially. China, we've seen quite a bit of development in respect to AI regulation more recently, but the US and UK have been a little slower. I would imagine there's some really interesting opportunities for 
more cooperation on a regulatory basis to, like we've seen with um, GDPR in respect to the big tech giants, and that sort of being a template for what's happening in respect to data in, in the US, I, I think there might be a possibility for the same in respect to AI and identity and some other areas. But anyway, I, I don't know what you think I, I, about that. I think I mean I, I think it would be great, and I think it, it is certainly we are as as, as, I, as I said that the city of London, the corporation, and and indeed working with a lot of the trade bodies operating in this area, uh, it is something that we are keen to see happen. We, we are keen to see more of that more coherent regulatory framework between the the, the US and the UK, and, and we are and we will continue to push the regulators in the UK on mm. on that agenda. And I, I know that you know the SCA and others are aware of this. They, they, it is a challenge for them, but they're, they're, they're aware of this and they've got a lot of very bright people at the SCA thinking about it at the moment. So we'll continue to push. And I, I, I'm sure that plenty of people listening to this on, on in the US will, I hope, do the same with the, the US regulators that they're in contact with. I want to talk about green um, and ESG stuff, but just before I get to that, um, you know, obviously the UK has been one of the leading um, players in respect to the challenger bank market as well. Um, we have seen just in December, we saw Nubank um, IPO becoming the largest bank in the Brazilian market in the process, uh, which is quite impressive for a bank that was founded in late 2013. Um, and we've seen similar success with Starling and Monster and, and others in, in the UK market. Any bets on uh, who's going to be the first uh, challenger to IPO in the UK market? That's a really good one. I'm, I'm, uh... Who I who I offend by uh, <laughs> by, by plumping? Uh, I mean, I, I I won't name a name there, but it, I think there is. Okay, that's you know, that's sound. I, I think. The next big dinner in Manchester, House, I, they're bound to put me sitting beside the uh, the CEO of the one I didn't mention. So I'm going to be very careful there. Yeah, Fred but and, you know, and, given and, given the the there's some very traditional uh, banks and um, you know FIs in in the London market, um, you know. Um, Obviously, um, Lloyd's, uh, HSBC, previously known as Midlands Bank, etc. Um, but but looking at that impact of the fact that you know N26 now is the second largest bank in the German market, New Bank is the largest bank in the Brazilian market. Is there sort of a grudging acceptance now that this Neo Bank or Challenger Bank thing is real? I think there is. I mean, uh, the, the, I think there is, and I think that the established banks are trying to work out how to react to that and how to mm. to, to pivot in their own business models, and the, the likes of Starling and Monzo are are making inroads. I mean, I, and and they have different stories and and different ways that their their own their own business models are a little bit different, but they but but they are making they are now beginning to make real impacts on 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 uh, certainly amongst. Just looking at the, um, I, I looking at I, I got a I've got a couple of them on my own phone. <clears throat> I know I'm sure I'm sure Anne, you're going to be in touch with Anne Bowden. Um, yeah, well, yeah, no, I, I know Anne well. We we got yeah. uh, we she's uh, we, with my Irish background as well. Of course, she spent a number of years working in in Dublin, so we have a little with something in common there as well. Yeah, good. So so on the green finance and sustainability side, obviously, um, you know we we have seen increasing uh, focus on this um, over 
over the last uh, you know few years, COP26, obviously, with their um, statements about uh, coal uh, in in particular, um, you know, this and and we also saw the protests in uh, the UK against you know HSBC and Barclays in particular. Um, but in respect to sort of sustainability and the green finance stuff, you know, where do you see your role in in promoting the ESG side of things? It's a big part of the role. Every, every Lord Mayor brings in a sort of personal focus into the year alongside the, as it were, the day job of being Lord Mayor, where you're the, the ambassadorial piece for the sector. Um, and my theme for the year, my own personal focus for the year, people and purpose, investing in a better tomorrow. That, that has a big focus on the ESG agenda, particularly the S. Actually, I, was, I, was, I really wanted to broaden out. We've been talking a lot about the E over the last couple of years and the build up to COP26. So I wanted to I wanted to bring the S piece into the, in, into the centre stage, talking about impact investment. And we're we're, going, we're working on I'm working on an event, uh, a summit focused on, on on the S in ESG impact investing, which will take place in in, in London in Mansion House in, in London in, in mid July. But I haven't forgotten the we're still that there was going to be I was very conscious of the fact coming into office on the Friday. The last Friday, the, the the day that COP was officially COP twenty six was officially meant to end. I know it went on a couple of days. They didn't get to bed until what was it, the early hours of Sunday morning or something like that. But I, I was very conscious, taking office at that, at that time, that there was going to be a significant chunk of COP twenty six follow up work to do, particularly around those commitments given through the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, the, 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 that $130 trillion commitment to mobilise capital uh, towards the transition to net zero. Huge. I, mean, I think when we look back at COP26, that's going to be the thing that COP26 is remembered for, that extraordinary commitment. And we are, I mean, we're, the financial world is very conscious of the fact that it needs to, pretty much all the CEOs and chairs that I talk to at the moment are very conscious of the need to demonstrate progress on that over the next 12 months before COP27. And I think over the next couple of months, we'll be trying to demonstrate to the world that there has been some progress. So I think there'll, there'll be a little, there's more work on that to come, like that COP26 follow-up piece, potentially looking at something that will check in midway through the year between COP26 and COP27, just to see how well we're doing, what we're doing, making sure that there are steps that are being take, taken to see that mobilization of capital beginning. No, I do think there's a bit of a generational shift there in, in terms of public support as well. Public support for big coal, big oil, those sort of things seems to be waning, um, you know, and a lot more support coming through for renewables and sustainability and those messages. And essentially, I think what you, we're seeing is a shift where corporations are going to have to be good corporate citizens now. I think that's the the emphasis of sort of where this shift but should take us, at least, hopefully does. Um, but, um, you know, obviously there's some some pretty big picture changes coming up in respect to policy. So one uh, around ESG, you know, that's going to continue to be stronger as, as climate, the issues of climate change become more apparent. And the other thing is obviously, you know, uh, highly automated societies and the role that that has to play on um, employment and the labour force. Um, what sort of longer term planning um, it, does the Lord Mayor's office do in respect to those sorts of issues and how that might affect London? City of London Corporation has, uh, the, I, of which I sit sort of at the head of, of the corporation, has been doing a lot of work around around this agenda over the last couple of years. And we, we were, you know, the, we'd been doing it in any event. I mean, there was there was plans thinking about you know, what London would look like through to the 2030s. Those plans were already there. I think with the pandemic and the effect that that's had on 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 cities generally, and in London, the City of London in particular, we've we've stepped back and actually begun to rethink our plans. 
And we've been looking at you know, what London will offer by way of an outstanding environments to carry on business, a, a, a vibrant cultural offer, looking at those aspects of things to make sure that we've got a really attractive proposition in London for the workers, for the residents, for the visitors in, in coming, into the, coming into the city, because we're going to have to. We're going to have to reinvent a lot of what we previously just took for granted. There's so much really positive stuff coming out of this. Just in the real estate area, for instance, last year, uh, 2021, we granted about 4 million square feet of planning permission uh, for office development in the city. That's up 70 up 70 percent on on 2020. And those a lot of those buildings are going to be absolutely world class in terms of the experience for people working in those buildings. And I think they'll also be coming back to our previous point in the discussion. They're going to be hugely uh, less carbon intensive. They, they're, they're car, their environmental footprint is going to be a fraction in many cases of smaller, older uh, buildings that they're replacing. So I think there'll be great buildings to work in and that they'll actually be far better buildings from an environmental point of view over the, the years to come. So we're going to really see, I think, an exciting an, an exciting city uh, coming coming out of that. So we're doing a lot a lot of thinking, Brett, to uh, to, to, to make sure we're, we're ready we're ready for those changes. But does the whole working from home movement, has that impacted the city at all? Sadly, it's impacted a lot of the smaller businesses in the city. I mean, they, as you expect, you know, the retail businesses that support the city, that the the the, the dry cleaners and news agents and the the sandwich shops, they've 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 had a very hard time. And the city, we took steps over the last year and a half to to, to do to try and protect them. This we we were able through the amounts of the cash we had in our reserves. We put in place it last last summer. We put in place a fifty million pound scheme, a grant scheme, not loans, grants to, to small city businesses. And I, I know businesses in the in the ward that I represent uh, in the city that, that were getting grants of 20,000, 30,000, right up to 100,000. And if you're a small business in the city, uh, th- that that grant has been a lifeline to keep them going. The, the offices, the big, the big employers work. I think all of the big employers, like even like my own firm, we're, we're working, we're working out what a more flexible working pattern is going to mean. But I'm very opt- I, I, I remain a I remain a sort of a, a bull about the office. I mean, I, I believe people will come back because of the benefits of people being in the same space together, the energy, the collaboration, the creativity that that creates, and the, and the training opportunities, particularly for junior lawyers. For instance, in my in my in my own area, you know, we need to, the junior lawyers need to be getting that sort of in person, hands on training experience, seeing what seeing how to run deals seeing how to see seeing what the dynamic of a meeting is like and it's very difficult to, to, to replicate that online uh, at the moment maybe in 20 years time the technology will be better but at the moment it just doesn't 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 work so i know uh, we've got to wrap up we've got a few minutes but just before we do a couple of things uh, first of all china um the beijing olympics china has chosen to use the beijing olympic as a platform to trial their central bank digital currency the yuan i know uh, just a few days before you started your term um the uh, the central the reserve bank came out um um talking about a possible cbdc but any any further thoughts on on central bank digital currencies for London or, or for the UK more generally? Well, we know, we know the Bank of England is looking at it, uh, and we, I'd, I'd be very encouraging of the central bank to, to of the Bank of England to continue thinking about it. It'd be great to see uh, the UK taking a lead on that. Let's see, and I'm hoping that we'll see further positive developments on, on that. And and indeed, international a bit of international competition, you know, for, for, for forcing the pace that would be a good thing. Crypto assets would would benefit from a uh, would benefit from significant central bank involvement in that sector. That's my mm. my personal view. Mm. And uh, for 
the coming months? Uh, what are the plans for the Lord Mayor's office? Well, we've got a, a bunch of things going on. We've got a. I'll be back on the road. I'm. I'm, I'm going to be visiting. Going to be over to my old to my hometown, my original hometown, Dublin, in early early March. Then I'll get off to the Gulf a little bit later in March. And we've got trips to. We've got plans to visit India. Plans to visit uh, a number of the Southeast Asian countries in 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 the coming months as well. So a fairly full program of travel. Uh, some big events in London. As I would as I said, we'll probably be doing something around May with a with a COP26 focus. Those are the, uh, my impact summer in July, lots of other things coming coming up as well. And of course, in the middle of it all, I, I can't but mention the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. There's going to be a very special moment yes, for me as Lord Mayor, greeting Her Majesty at the gates, at the, at the doors of St. Paul's Cathedral for the service of Thanksgiving to celebrate her, her, her Platinum Jubilee. That will be a, walking up the aisle with the pearl sword in my arm before Her Majesty. That's going to be a hairs in the, but once in a lifetime moment. Uh, absolutely. Once in many lifetimes, in fact. So congratulations on getting that gig. <laughs> well, Lord Lord Mayor uh, Vincent Keveney, thank you very much for joining us on Breaking Banks. It's been a delightful update and we wish you all the best with your uh, visit in San Francisco and we hope to uh, speak to you from uh, when you get back to the City of London uh, once again in the coming months. I'd love to do that and, and, and update you on, on, on the various things we've been talking to. But thank you very much, Brett, and great, great to, uh, great to have the opportunity to join you today. Fantastic. Well, that's it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after the break. This show is sponsored by FIS. If you want to reach the future faster, you must start early. For those who do, FIS brings you RISE. Insightful articles, best practices, research and intelligence to help you stay current and rise above the competition. Subscribe at FISglobal.com slash insights. Or follow FIS Global on social media to get notified as soon as content is released. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Well, it was hard to miss the news that uh, rapper Razzle Khan, also known as Heather Morgan, and her husband Ilya Lichtenstein were uh, arrested 
last week and accused of uh, money laundering of some Bitcoin. Uh, joining us today, Dave Birch. Uh, Dave, uh, Heather Morgan is like you and like uh, Ron Shevlin, uh, well, at least a former, in her case, Forbes contributor. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think she probably has a fair few more followers than I do now, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so I, Dave's here with us. We're going to talk about this and and kind of the future face of fraud. So cryptocurrency, money laundering, but even beyond that, Dave, you wrote a piece in your Forbes column uh, a few weeks ago now on uh, what would John Dellinger do with instant payments. So we will uh, we'll, we'll get into that at all. But let's start with uh, the big headline, the the rapper uh, Razzlecon. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think she made any money on her rap, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I look, the, vi- I, the rap video is pretty cool, though, I must say. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's got to be the way forward for me. It's this, you know, writing in Forbes is just the start. Rap videos. I can see you, you rapping, dude. <laughs> I can see that. But, yeah. uh, you know, no, the guy, I, it, it's all right. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I think two things about this, really. I mean, one is... I mean, it was weird because when this story broke, I'd actually been writing some stuff about um, about some stuff to do with, you know, with money laundering and, and criminality and this sort of thing. And then this big story broke. Um, and and I immediately started to think, I mean, Netflix must be down there with the checkbooks open because what a great story for Netflix. Well, they, they literally are. I don't know if that was uh, I, I, they literally have signed on to do a documentary for them. I'm not surprised at all because I, I can see, you know, you know, and people like that. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's huge. But here's, here's what I thought. I don't know. Look, we're all really interested in um, reducing the overall cost of financial intermediation. Right. So that that's what this is all about. We're trying to make a better financial services sector. If you look at the costs of financial intermediation, any rudimentary examination of it will tell you that the costs of financial intermediation are going up, not down. We invented laser beams and computers and transistors, and it still costs more. Uh, the, you know, the financial services sector costs more, extracts more uh, than it did before. So we, so we want it to go down. And one of the areas, uh, one of the reasons why the costs are so high is because of KYC, AML, CTF, PEP. You know, it's because of it's because of all these. So rethinking the way that we deal with crime, the bad guys, is is fundamental. You know, this is why I'm so interested in the whole reg tech thing as well as fintech. So that so this is why it's in context. This is why I'm thinking about uh, all of this stuff. And I'm writing and I'm thinking, wow, you know, there is going to be a problem with these these crypto because, you know, if I was involved in some massive extortion against Brett involving assassination markets and um, and his uh, rap videos and his rap videos, which I would I would threaten to release to the public uh, without substantial payments. I would come up with a scheme which involved, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the Bitcoin. I'm going to send the Bitcoin through a Russian dark drop, you know, where they put the money in a box and you go pick it up. And then I'll convert that into Ethereum and I'll send that through the Tornado Cash mixer. And then what I got out of that, I'll turn it into Monero. And this is what I'm thinking, you know, what actually happened. She bought a Walmart gift card and had the stuff shipped to her apartment in her real name. I mean, this is like if you saw that in the movie, like, like, if you know, you saw the 
the, the, the master criminals and they've come up with this amazing scat. What was that thing? Remember they had the thing where they did the tricks at Las Vegas and they not only them. that, but he had a box. He had a box in his home which had was marked burner phones. And yeah, that's right. Don't 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 put the burner phone in the box that says burner phone on it. This would be rudimentary. And now these strike me as being rookie errors, right? So, but you have to assume that the other people out there, since we're not reading about them, since they're not on the front page of the newspapers and all the websites. The other people getting away with the... I mean, you look at the figures for the amount of fraud going on, it's absolutely billions. So clearly the other people aren't buying Walmart gift cards with it and they're getting away with it. And the thing I think about this is that it's the automation which is interesting. So, so you know, people have always stolen money for banks. And my point about John Dillinger. But when you start going into this kind of online DeFi world, you get these you get these frauds which can be scaled. It's not like, you know, the Italian, you know, the good old-fashioned bank robbery with the machine gun or or Michael Caine with his mini and the, the cash and all that sort of thing. This is stuff that scales. You know, this is this is this is metaverse bank robbery, not universe bank robbery. This is replicatable bank robbery. And how we set about thinking about defenses there. I think is very fascinating. I'm an extremely boring person. So if you ask me where we should start, I will, of course, say we need to have a proper digital identity infrastructure, which we don't have at the moment. But that, that's that's just one part of it. But I don't know what you think, Brett. It's like so, no, what, but this, what this fascinates is, me about no, this is bots. It's not people robbing yeah. banks or it's bots robbing banks. But but here's the flaw with decentralization, isn't it? We're seeing this in real time is that... Um, you know, when you when you have fraud and you want to get your untraceable anonymous money back, which is your your meme that you've you've been tweeting on the last you know I don't know seven eight years. Um, you know, the the reality is, if there's not an element of centralization, if there's not an element of ex- acceptable traceability, and that really is around. The identity, as you say, if we if we don't have that, then you know there's nothing to stop this from continuing to occur. So while decentralization of money is all well and good, and money networks is all well and good, when you lose money, that's the flaw in decentralized networks. I mean, is that maybe it's not as simple as that, but um, the the ability to stop fraud and police crime is itself. Um, you know, a, a requirement for centralization in, in some respect, isn't it? Well, let let me let me muddy the waters by kind of dividing things into two sort of categories at the moment. So, for example, there's a there's a court. I think it's still going on. There's a there's a court case in Korea at the moment. So some people make some whatever it was. I don't remember token decentralized exchange or something using smart. I know they're not smart contracts. I know they're not contracts. Okay. And there's there's uh, there's a mistake in the smart contract, as in fact there always is. Okay, and so guy comes along, spots the mistake in the smart smart contract, uh, and and heads for the hills with a couple of million dollars. And uh, and the people who run this thing, instead of being like code is law, you know this is the future, we don't need no stinking badges, turn into a bunch of status crybabies and go whining to the to the police about this. So the guy gets taken to court and he's charged with you know fraud or something and he says 
I didn't do anything wrong. I just I just executed the code as as you you know you put up this code. I executed the code. The code did exactly what you told it to do, um, and and I made so I'm not giving you the money back. I didn't steal. I didn't steal anything. I didn't do any fraud. I just ran the code that you put up there. And you know, he's kind of got a point. That's that's different from me coming round to to Brett's with a monkey wrench and smashing him over the head until he gives me the password of his Bitcoin wallet. That's that's fraud. By the way. Did you hear this? What happened? My good friend Vincent Everts in in the Netherlands. This you. This is a his. He was doing his podcast, and 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 some guys with a gun. Swatted. Yeah, they said this. Some some thieves, you know, broke in while he was doing his podcast. While he's doing it, so I, I'm just going to make sure him. the door's locked. Hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. They were threatening him <laughs> for his Bitcoin. I mean, amazing. You know. <laughs> So, so I just want to say, so what interests me, I mean, there's the old-fashioned thing. I come around and smash uh, Brett over the head and I steal his Bitcoin wallet money, whatever. That's kind of, that's kind of old-fashioned crime. You know what I mean? It's like it's – but what's crime, crime what's I think uh, far more interesting is, is actual decentralized crime that belongs to that infrastructure. Um, and here, things get really complex. Good example. A couple of weeks ago, there was a there was a fraud on OpenSea. You remember reading about this, the NFT marketplace. So somebody had figured out there was a mistake somewhere. So you could basically buy NFTs for their old price. So so they went in, they bought these NFTs. So you know the picture of the chimpanzee with sunglasses is now normally worth a million dollars, and they were buying it for ten dollars and then reselling it for a million dollars. So, uh, and there's a fantastic write-up on this by Tom Robinson at Elliptic, who who is just a terrific story. And so, so they figure out this fraud. So they decide to email all of the people who still have these NFTs listed with these old prices. So, and tell them to do something about it. So the fraudsters, in order to do something about it, you have to execute uh, an Ethereum transaction. So the fraudsters write a bot that front runs these transactions. So by by trying to fix the problem. The, the problem becomes even worse because it's in a public blockchain. It's in a mempool where you know the front running is is endemic anyway. So so what I'm really curious about is how do we kind of begin to like like Brett said like if we have this wholly decentralized environment, this is never going to end because because there'll always be a bot versus bot war going on out there where people will come up with ever more complex frauds that are automatable and you know which which makes them a bit of a sort of different nature so like i said i i'm a boring person so i think we have to start with some kind of digital identity infrastructure but i i am really curious to hear about you know other ideas about what we can do with this and i and i don't buy the you know people saying well you know cryptocurrency is terrible for criminals because you you've got the chain and you can trace the blockchain and you know that all, all of which is true um if you put your money into Walmart gift vouchers instead of tornado cash or, you know. Well, you have to take it out of cryptocurrency at some point, right? Well. You have to um, convert it in some way. Well, I don't know. Is that true? I don't know. 
Well, in the case of this fraud, and by the way, um, they've just been charged. We should make sure we say alleged in front of uh, all of these things. But the accusation is not that they hacked and stole the Bitcoin, which, by the way, was worth $71 million at the time of the hack in 2015 or 2016. Um, you know, Fed's just seized over $4 billion of it now. Um, but they're just uh, accused of the money laundering. And according to the New York Times article, the funds were just sitting there for a while. They were they just kind of had their eye on it and they looked when they pulled it out. So, I mean, it, it only has utility if you could do something with it. I suppose you could wash well, it increasingly think, opaque assets. But. Yeah, I think if we're going to try and make the buy some NFTs yeah. uh, more interesting, I think we might want to start the story a little bit further back because remember the first lot of proceeds went out through Alpha Bay, which was a dark market, which at the time they didn't realize that it, actually the feds had seized it. And, and it makes obvious sense, right? If you're the feds and you managed to get hold of one of these dark market servers, you wouldn't shut it down. You, you, you carry on running it and, and collect all of the information about everything that passes through it. So there, there's that aspect of the story. We haven't heard the whole you know end of that yet, which also fascinates me. Um, but you're right. I mean... It seems strange because in one way you can see all of the transactions, so you can see exactly what's going on. But I think the issue is some of those transactions will go into places where you can't see what's going on. They'll go into these, you know, it's, it's noticeable. I mean, again, we probably so, want so to- So I've got, I, 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 I mean, I do have a, a question from an infrastructure perspective, obviously, um, you know, the one thing that has characterized the crypto market, you know, from the Mt. Gox days and so forth, you know, our good friend um, Chris Skinner, for example, lost you know, quite a bit of Bitcoin at, on the Mt. Gox hack. Um, but Bitcoin has had that, this. Aren't they going to get that back, though? I thought they were going to get that back. I, I don't know. Um, I get mixed but, up about these things. But but my, my point is, if, you know, if you look at the the wallet infrastructure for the early Bitcoin stuff um, and the early exchange exchanges uh, dealing with this stuff, you know it has been a problem. The the uh, the hacks. Um, now, you know we we obviously will evolve better mechanisms for security, but um, when we look at implementations of CBDC. Do you think they're going to have the same issues that we see with the exchanges and the uh, the crypto wallets, or um, you know, does the nature of centralization with the central banks issuing that provide a, an, an additional level of protection and security? I, I actually think, Brett, and, and you you probably think I'm just like really kind of reactionary, and uh, but but I, I don't think it will be a problem for for three reasons really. So first of all. No sane central bank is going to allow completely anonymous digital currency. That will never happen. And no matter how much people whine and complain about, uh, you know, cash is anonymous and it's the right yeah. to be anonymous and all this sort of thing, they're, they're comparing apples and oranges. Anonymous physical cash and anonymous digital cash are not the same thing at all. Anonymous digital cash is a hand grenade with the pin already pulled out, you know, the moment it goes out. So that's never going to happen. So that's the first point. The second point is, um, I think in order for digital currency to function effectively in the mass market, it simply cannot work the way cryptocurrency works. It has to work in a vastly simpler, much more controlled way. Um, and we all know what that's going to be because they're already doing it in China. 
which is it's going to be mobile phones and smart cards. Right. It's going to be tamper resistant hardware so that it works offline. It's going to be certified devices, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing's going to be much more controlled and um, stable, which, again, I think is a good thing. Well, how does this play into the um, a, a lot of the big virtual asset service providers have joined together to sign on for this uh, new thing called trust, travel rule, universal solution technology. Yeah. And that's a little bit different than you know the identity piece, a little bit different than yeah. what Brett was talking about. But where, where does that fit in? Well, I know I'm probably a bad person to talk about that because I'm not wholly convinced that um, FATF and the travel rule is to, is to the greater good of humanity. Um, it's not absolutely obvious to me that my personal information should be packaged up and sent across the internet to to other places when I'm when I'm trying to, you know, send some money to a cousin or or, or something like that. So it does sort of bother me a little bit. Um, well, back, back is- up just a half a step, Dave, and talk about what what are the proposed rules uh, in that, and and if, and the, the pieces that you think might work or might. Well, not the, work. The, the, the travel rule basically says, look, if, if I if I go to the bank and I send some money to Brett you know, somewhere in the plethora of swift messages and databases and asynchronous transfer, somewhere in there has to be all of my personal details and all of Brett's personal details so that it can be scanned for, you know, sanctions, compliance and monitoring and all this sort of thing. And, and, and you know, frankly, you know, the wallet infrastructure is, is core here. Um, you know, I think one of the things we we don't really fully comprehend as yet. I mean, Dave does, obviously, and and JP, you probably do as well, is that the world is shifting away from, as we move from physical money modality and the proxies for that, which have been checks and, you know, like cash is there, obviously, but even credit cards, um, you know, which allow us as a a proxy to, to check our bank account details. The, the new mechanism for that that's emerging globally is the wallet. Now, we, you know, we sometimes call them super apps and things like that, but this, this wallet infrastructure that emerges, I, I don't know how you have wallets that are interoperable that work wherever you go without having identity tied to that. Um, and- well, I think, I think I'm sort of more optimistic there, Brett, because I think, I think we can see the rudiments of how to do this in the world of, of, of verifiable credentials and what's going on with double three. So, so the idea that, you know, I, you know, we're, we're in the metaverse, uh, we need to interact in some way. Um, you need to know that I'm a resident of the United States. You're not allowed, let's say we want to do something and I have to be a resident of the United States to do it. So I could show you a US passport, which gives you all of my personal information and means that I'm now wide open to identity theft. Or I could present a verifiable credential which says I am, a, you know, I am a U.S. citizen or I'm resident in the U.S. or something, and then you would say, well, okay, that credential has to be digitally signed by somebody that I would trust, who's part of our trust framework. So if it's signed by JP, whatever, um, but if it's signed by Citibank, that's good enough. So I think by moving away from identification and moving toward credentials, I think we can see the way forward. And the idea that the wallet would become a holder of these collections of credentials, I I think that's intellectually consistent. So so while the thing is, I I guess I'm more optimistic 
going forward because I can see a way that we can balance these things up. And it, and and in a way, that kind of reconnects banks with one of their traditional functions. So if, if Citibank uh, know all this stuff about me, but they keep it all safely locked up in their vaults, and what I actually take around the metaverse with me is, is cryptographic proofs that Citibank have provided, which don't so, and we'll use the simple example. Everybody right, uses right. the, you know, I have a cryptographic proof provided by Citibank, which says I'm over 21 years of age. It doesn't contain my age. It doesn't contain my date of birth. It's not a driver's license, which gives away all these other facts about me. It's just a cryptographic proof, which says we know this person's over 21. And there's a world of difference between asking me to present all of my personal data to take part in a transaction and asking me to present from my wallet, the subset of credentials. Right which are needed to enable the transaction. So, uh, yeah. So, but I mean, this, that's, this, that's, requires, that's this requires digital identity frameworks. It requires us to yeah. identify who are the trusted organizations that can, can, can provide the cryptographic uh, key or, or hash to, to yeah. access, access the, the required hope. information. Right? Our hope would obviously be that banks step up to the plate there. And you yeah. see things like, you know the gain initiative, but that but, the, but, you know, but a bank. I mean, even if banks step up to the plate, my my argument here is this is you, you require this at a national level. It needs to be national identity infrastructure because telemedicine, um, access to education, access to financial services, the metaverse, all of this is going to require digital identity. The identity infrastructure we have in place can't yeah, transpose effectively on the, into those worlds, right? I, I understand what you're saying there, but if I was going to try to, to construct a more... So, so it's a, uh, you know, Visa isn't a national identity infrastructure. Visa wasn't created by the government. And, you know, I, I don't have a visa card because I'm a U.S. citizen or, or whatever. You know, um, I, I can get off the plane anywhere in the world and use my visa card and it works fine. So, you know, you could easily imagine some sort of financial sector passport or something that like, you know, the banks can agree on SWIFT and they can agree on Visa. They can agree on all sorts of things. I mean, why the banks couldn't agree on some sort of financial identity thing, I don't know. I mean. In different countries, you might obtain that financial identity using different root documents. So in a in a sophisticated and advanced country, you know, like Estonia or something, you use your online digital identity to get your financial services passport. In the UK, you, in the time-honoured fashion, show up with copies of your gas bill and stand in line to do this. And in the US, you, I don't know, you send in cancelled checks or something. I don't know how they do this. But 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 the point is how you got the you, financial You take so, your horse and your gun to a branch. <laughs> right. So you see what I mean, but I like I want to be more optimistic about this. I think um, you know, reconnecting banks with their traditional function in the kind of trust and reputation area. Forget about the money, forget about the payments, forget about the the stuff where the margins are going to zero. You're never going to be able to make a living out of sending digital currency backwards and forwards. You can't. But the other stuff. But that's is a good thing, right? Because it means thing. that the like the the intermediation aspect of this means there's no gaming of that. It just it becomes right. more transparent and more accessible. Right. And if you if you I mean I was going to do it for a panel. I just realised this is radio, so it won't matter. But but if I if I take my wallet that's next to me right now, if I open up my wallet and tip it out, there's no money in there. Everything that's in my wallet is credentials. It's my right, driver's right. license. It's my visa card. It's my store cards, my loyalty cards. It's my train, uh, you know, season ticket thing. So, so everything that's in the wallet basically is already identity, you know, and 
I think that's a really powerful way of, of, of thinking how this might work moving forwards. Like with banks providing the really important stuff that goes in the identity in the wallet, which is their identity. And you know, if if someone else can do a US dollar stable coin, it works fine. Let them. There's a there's a <laughs> We might want to reflect it, but there's a fantastic quote in the FT last weekend where they were talking about the regulation of stable coins. And the guy said, there's nothing inherently dodgy about stable coins, but there is something inherently dodgy about banking, which is why they have to have such strict regulation. And people, <laughs> it's true. I kind of agree with that. So it's like if people, you know, if there are good rules around stable coins, you know, about the reserves and this kind of thing. If it turns out Disney can do a better stable coin than than uh Ford or Circle, or Citibank, let them, who cares, right? The important stuff in the wallet is, is the credentials. Well, and, and even then, Dave, as you pointed out in your article um, in Brazil, right, uh, the crooks are you know, holding people hostage and demanding that payment be sent via PIX, the yeah, uh, instant payment I, network. I, I did have, I felt a little bit naughty about writing that, but I couldn't resist writing it. So it's like, you know, if you're if you're a bank robber looking at modern technology, you've got two, you can either, you know, management consultants would tell you, you've got to expand in scale or scope. And, it, it, and Brazil is a very advanced uh, fintech nation, you know, so there's a good example there. So there you have criminals doing both. So expanding in scale, there's. I mean, I'm sure you read this story. The the the, the criminals blocked off a whole town and and robbed all of the banks uh, and and drove off with people tied on top of their cars as human shields and all this sort of thing. So you can do scale. You can go in and rob all. Robbing one bank doesn't get you enough, but you can go and rob all of the banks. Or you can expand in scope, and that's what they did. When Pix went like Pix is the instant payment network. There was an immediate rise in instant kidnappings. So people would be kidnapped off the street and the criminals would demand the ransom payment instantly through the instant payment network to the, to the, to the point. I mean, you can look it up. It's, it's turned into a real problem. So, so you know, criminals will respond to new technology. That's, that's what I was saying. Like, what would, would John Dillinger still be really walking into a bank? If John Dillinger, if it, like, was he a master, if he was a master criminal, unlike Heather, who ordered the Walmart gift voucher, if he was a master criminal, then he'd go work for a bank, wouldn't he? Well, well here's the biggest, the biggest frauds that have been conducted within the banking sector haven't actually been hacks. They've been internal internal issues, right? So I, you're right. I, yeah, the, the data bears that out. But Well, here, here's the big question, and we'll, let, we'll end on this. Well, we have bank robberies in the metaverse. <laughs> you know, I was making fun of this during the week, and I, I feel a bit bad picking on people, but I saw I saw something about this bank branch in the metaverse, and so and it, it, there's this person standing in this, and I, this is so ridiculous because Second Life Part Two. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I have my old, I went and got the picture of the ABN Amro bank branch from 2006, which looked exactly the same, by the way. It's a bit like. No one wants to go to a bank branch. It doesn't matter. Exactly. It's in metaverse. Like it's, I, I, know, you know. They Amen, say, brother. You go to a virtual <laughs> bank branch and you stand in a virtual line with people and they get met by a virtual banker. No, it's like we live in a world of embedded finance and API. I don't want to go to a bank branch. It doesn't matter if it's if it's you know beautiful colors and and my bank teller is a pink dinosaur and I'm standing in line. 
with Mark Zuckerberg in a skeleton suit. I'm not going to the bank branch. I don't care whether it's in the metaverse. So this is clearly, you know what this is, Brett? This is a vision of the future that you get when you ask people like me, i.e. technologists. If we want to see what the metaverse is going to look like, we should be talking to artists and creative people and imaginative people, Absolutely. you know, not people like me. No, and not bankers. <laughs> well, Dave, thanks for joining us. Um, for those of you listening, Dave will return uh, at a show we've got planned uh, for next month in March, which we're going to be talking about China's CBDC launch. Richard Turin will be joining us from China as well. So some, some good stuff there. Stay tuned. You're listening to Breaking Banks. We'll see you again shortly. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend, or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.